0: Our scripture reading this evening comes from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Today we're going to look at chapter 2 and the first, th- first three verses of chapter 3. So Ezekiel 2, 1 until 3, 3. But just for a bridge of context between today's and last time's sermon, we'll read the, just the last half of the last verse of chapter one so we begin in 28b as it is and we'll focus our sermon on two and until three three so this is the word of our lord for us through his prophet ezekiel receive this with faith with hope and with love for this is the word of god to us tonight thus says the lord such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel." to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, be not afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, through though briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Be not afraid of the words, nor be not dismayed at your looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and he had writings on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, Feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So far the reading of the word of the God of Lord of the Lord. By 1988 David Foster Wallace in his late 20s had decided he wanted to be a writer. Just a year before, he had already published his first novel, The Broom of the System. It gathered some mild critical appraise, enough for people to see that he had some potential, maybe, but for him to decide that he wanted to write for a living. Yet, by 1988, Wallace had been smoking weed heavily for over a decade. His drinking had, had also gotten out of control. Substance abuse had negatively, negatively affected virtually every meaningful relationship in his life. Biographer D.T. Max reports that Wallace, quote, worried pot smoking had ruined his brain permanently and he would never be able to write again. So at that time, Wallace started, started attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, bringing him face-to-face with religion and religious people. And while the 12-step program of AA, as we recognize, is far from being a systematic or a biblical theology, as far, uh, is as far from that as the East is from the West. For someone like David Wallace, brilliant, arrogant and skeptical, the AA's principles were humbling and eye-opening. Wallace's recovery experience ultimately took several years involving multiple relapses, time in a residential rehab facility, and at least, as we know, one suicide attempt. Still, he was a different, humbler man when he came out at the other end. D.T. Max again, quote, to do well in recovery required modesty rather than brilliance. It was not easy for him to accept, accept humbling adages like, your best thinking got you here. How smart could he be, he continues. The other program members would remind him, if he, were, if he was in a room in the basement of a church with a dozen other people talking about how he couldn't stop drinking. How can someone call himself smart and find himself in that situation? He says. This reality of having your choices, assumptions about life, and even your own identity put into perspective by the poor results that they have yielded so far is the core of Ezekiel's message to the people of God living in exile even after the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is ravaged they will still lack enough self-consciousness to realize they brought that on themselves and they will ask what did we do to deserve this to answer that question for them God raises the prophet Ezekiel But you see, as we put ourselves in their shoes, the answer to what did I do to deserve this is usually not one that anyone wants to hear. Whatever this is, the consequences of your own actions or maybe some injustice or evil committed against you. Yet we have seen so far in Ezekiel that our lives in exile and the miseries of our alienation from God are indeed consequences of our sinfulness. We've seen how sin broke us, broke the world, and broke our relationship with God. So if we want to understand the message of the book, we must recognize this reality with great clarity before we can even begin looking for a way to return from where we should never have left. And this is the main point of our text tonight. In summary, Ezekiel 2 teaches us that through Jesus, God is remaking what sin has destroyed. Again, this is the core message of this passage. Through Jesus, God is remaking what sin has destroyed. We'll see that in two points this evening. And the first one is, it was our rebellion that caused our exile. Again, it was our rebellion that caused our exile. We'll see that in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. In the last two sermons, as we've began this series, we have seen who Ezekiel is, the potential priest turned into a prophet to the exiles of Babylon, and we have seen who is sending Ezekiel, God, yet God coming from the north as an enemy would in the middle of a storm to judge his rebellious people. Speaking of which, today Ezekiel calls take shape as we hear more about the people he will be sent to. That's the focus of this passage. And it doesn't take a seminary degree to realize what God thinks of the people of Israel in this text. He makes that very clear. Beginning in verse 3, he calls them rebellious at least six times. Verse 3, nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. Verse 5, they are a rebellious house. Verse 6, they are a rebellious house. Verse 7, guess what? They are a rebellious house. Verse 8, you know the drill. So we see generation after generation God is telling Ezekiel, as we see in verses 3 and 4, fathers and descendants alike, going back and going forwards, have been rebelling against God And now they are counted as the others, as the pagans, as the nations. That's the meaning of the word nations in verse 3. It's a word that's usually used in the Old Testament to refer to the pagan Gentiles outside of Israel. And now God applies it to Israel. And by emphasizing the nature of this transgression mentioned in verse 3 as rebellion, God sets the terms of the call before Ezekiel. Zeke, you will go to a people that will not listen to you because they have not listened to me. In the words of a commentator, if responsiveness is to be the measure of success, Ezekiel's mission is declared a failure before it begins. Ezekiel, you will not like what I'm going to tell you. God is telling him. Yet God assures Ezekiel that this is not the goal, having people responding to him. The goal is for the people to know that the word of God comes to them through his mediator, his prophet, whether they believe it or not. The goal is for all of them to recognize that God's Promises are still standing, and that God is still faithful even when they're not. And you could say, when you look at this, at Ezekiel's call this way, you could say that Ezekiel's work is like any other work done on earth ever since sin came to be. In the beginning, Adam was told that he was going to eat from the sweat of his face because he would work on a land filled with thorns and thistles, a very similar language to what we see here in verse 6 when God says, says Ezekiel would be among briars, thorns, and scorpions, which some commentators think it's scorpion bush, not necessarily the animal scorpions, but either way, he will face difficulties from the ground that he will work on. And then you realize that the echoes of Genesis which we saw last week, continue to pop up in this text. As God calls Ezekiel the son of man multiple times, which sounds in Hebrew literally son of Adam. So Ezekiel in this passage as we look at him, he's like Adam, the man God raised through his spirit, which he did to Ezekiel in verse 2. Dealing with the consequences of sin. Working to care for God's creation. While well, God's creation resists his advances. And then you look at this picture. That the text painted us, painted to us of Ezekiel and his work. At the light of Adam and his fall and his work. And the contours of that picture start to strike a familiar mental note. So yeah, Ezekiel represents a sort of Adam, a man filled with the Spirit of God, speaking the words of God to a people who will not believe him. And you think about it, and you start connecting dots, and you think, isn't this a preview of what we read, for example, in John 1:11? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And of course, John the Apostle here is talking about Jesus Christ, the same man who would be later called both Son of Man and also a second Adam. And you start connecting those dots. And this is why I call this series The Gospel According to Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel is going to rebellious people in exile to bring God's word to them while knowing they will not hear. is a clear anticipation of the ministry of Jesus, as clear as one can find in the Old Testament. Just as people would reject Jesus' ministry to the point of killing him, Ezekiel should not expect better results than that. What does that have to do with us, you might be asking? What does this reality say about our lives here today in the exile of living in a broken world apart from God's presence because of our sin? Well, the first thing we must understand, and this will be stressed over and over and over again in the first half of this book, is that. It was our rebellion that brought us here. God insists on making Ezekiel aware of the people's rebellion because they themselves did not think they were in the wrong. They needed 24 chapters of Ezekiel telling them that. They were in the promised land. They went regularly to the temple, and they thought that would be enough to protect them from their enemies. And we look at that and we say, isn't that so obvious? Yet, don't we still do the same? When we think that we are safe just because we go through the motions which are expected of us. This hit me hard this week as I was talking to some of you. And one concerned mother told me how her children can correctly spill out Bible trivia answers perfectly better than some adults that she knows. But yet she sometimes worries about ensuring that all this knowledge eventually becomes character, becomes obedience, becomes new life. And please, please do not get me wrong. Knowing the Bible is of first importance to all believers from the very youngest age possible. However, Merely memorizing Bible trivia does not get anyone into heaven. The point I'm trying to make is as simple as facts do not change hearts. And they don't. And it is clear from our text tonight because of our rebellion. Because we are a rebellious people. Deep inside our hearts, we are born in a state of rebellion against the God who created us and the world that we live in. And no matter how many facts we collect, we can still distort every single one to prove that we are good enough for God to love us or that He was the serpent that actually tempted us to sin. I must ask you then, Paraphrasing a part of our opening illustration. How good could you be if you are in a room, in the auditorium of a church, with a dozen other people hearing from the Word of God about how you can't stop rebelling? And we look to our fathers in the Bible, Adam's best thinking that he could be like God on his own means, started this big mess that we live in. Israel's best thinking got them to the margins of the Babylonian rivers being mocked by their captors. The best thinking of Jews and Romans, those who witnessed Jesus' teaching and miracles firsthand, that is, they had all the facts did not prevent them from killing the Son of God. And if if I may say so, I don't think anyone here consciously thinks these things in these terms. So this is why you need to take a good, hard look inside tonight and ask yourself, Do you act like you believe that you can know your way into heaven? That you can theologize your way into salvation? That a thousand shorter catechisms and 500 Heidelbergs will atone for your sins? That a proper collection of children's books ensures your children will keep walking with the Lord after they leave your home? What our text tells us tonight is that this line of thinking will not get you to a better place than Ezekiel's contemporaries. But if our sin is one of rebellion, as God repeats throughout the text, shouldn't our efforts to obey be enough to get us back then to the promised land? After all, those things that I mentioned like reading and learning from the Bible and teaching it to our children, they are good and commendable. So in other words, if rebellion is the problem, is there a certain level of obedience that can get us out of our trouble? Well, no, but also yes. And we'll see that in our final point tonight. The antidote to rebellion is obedience. Again, the antidote to rebellion is obedience. We see that from chapter 2, verse 8, until the end of our text at 3 3. The antidote to rebellion is obedience. As we've seen time and again in this series, while the people of Israel live in exilic misery, God sends his word to them. And he's sending his word to them through a renewed Adam. A man who can obey God because he's filled with God's Spirit. And this is what we see in the second part of our text. You see, like the first Adam who was tempted and tried in the garden with something to eat, or rather not to, God also tests Ezekiel before he sends him. We see that in verses 2 8 and 2 3 1. Zeke, to be my messenger, you must be obedient. Obey this command now. Eat this piece of paper that I'm giving you. What? God tells Ezekiel to eat a scroll, a roll of paper, with words on it of lamentation, of mourning, and woe written on them. And as weird... As this sounds, I then have to be have to confess my humbleness and credit the Ezekiel scholar and commentator Margaret Odell to clarifying this point to me because I couldn't see the point of what eating a piece of paper would have anything to do with being a prophet. I'm glad that was not part of my licensure exams. You see, as we learned some weeks ago, Ezekiel should have been a priest at the temple had he not been. He was actually 30 years old, the age where he was supposed to be initiated in his work as a priest. Then we read in Leviticus 8 and 9 that one part of the ordination rites for priesthood was a ceremony where the priests would sit for a meal and eat parts of the sacrifices that the people offered. That would symbolize for them and for the people their absorption of the people's sins. The priest so identifies with the people's sins that their sin becomes part of their own bodies. So when the priest goes into the presence of God later after that meal at the altar, those sins that he absorbed would be atoned and forgiven and covered. Yet, we're in Babylon. There are no altars to Yahweh in Babylon. There are no temples, no sacrifices, and there are no priests. So God then sends his word to his his people through his prophet. And he tests his prophet with a scroll that contains the very message that he will preach to them. Woe, woe mourning, and lamentation. So what we see here is Ezekiel doing it, eating that piece of paper, and then he becomes a participant in what he proclaims. He embodies, quite literally, the news of impending judgment by literally ingesting it, making it part of who he is. And once again, those wheels start spinning at the back of your head, and you realize that it does not get more gospel than this. Because we look at this text and we see this man who is a mediator between God and his people being sent to a rebellious nation, his obedience is tested. Will he take on himself the judgment? that is intended for his people? Will he do that? After echoing the first Adam and his failure, Ezekiel now points us to the second Adam who was tempted in the wilderness and who succeeded. We read that after 40 days of fasting, the devil himself shows up and tells him to turn stones into bread so he could eat. Will he eat? Men shall not live by bread alone, he says to the devil. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, he passes the test. And then like Ezekiel on Mount Calvary, Jesus fully absorbs God's judgment as his own, on his body, he drinks the cup fully of God's wrath. The wrath that was intended for the people. The woe, the lamentation, and the mourning that was intended for the people. He does that. Ever ha- after having perfectly obeyed his father's words throughout his life, after feeding on those words for his entire life, at the end, he feeds on God's wrath on him taking it on his body. And then you realize, yes, obedience is the antidote for our rebellion. Yet not our obedience, but Jesus' obedience. Jesus, the second Adam, restores what the disobedience of the first one broke. We read in Romans 5, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then we keep looking at the parallels. Jesus is the one in whom the Holy Spirit of God rested. Jesus is the very living word of God who came to preach the good news of faith and repentance, to preach the coming of the kingdom of God to a rebellious people, And through that and through his spirit, turning enemies into friends and exiles into family. And Jesus is the one who will bring, who will come again to bring God's final judgment against those who will still rebel against him to the very end. And speaking of very end, some of you might have noticed already that just like the vision of Ezekiel that we've seen in chapter 1 is similar to the one that John had in Revelation 4, they also share, John and Ezekiel, a similar experience of eating paper. In Revelation 10, the apostle John is is told to eat a scroll that would be bitter in his stomach while sweet in his mouth. And the difference... While similar experiences, the difference is there, is that after he eats, Ezekiel is told to go to the house of Israel. When John eats, God tells him that the message that he just ate, that he's going to preach, is for peoples, and nations, and languages, and kings. So putting all of this together, this weird scene of Ezekiel eating a scroll filled with judgment, is rich, is rich in imagery that points us to Jesus and to what we do once we have been transformed by Him. The good news of the gospel is that we are united to Christ by faith and have His obedience credited to us because He had our rebellion counted against Him and nothing in this world tastes as sweeter as chewing on this good news. And then, it gets better. We receive the same Spirit that rested on Jesus at his baptism, the same Spirit that empowered Ezekiel, John, and many others ever since to go and proclaim the message of Jesus, the living Word of God, to peoples and nations of every language. The call of Ezekiel also applies to us. Whether they will obey or not is not up to us. Our only task is to open this book and tell people, this is the word of God to you. And as we realize that the spirit of God enables us to testify about Jesus without worrying about results, we recognize that this is a challenge and a comfort. On the one hand, we are encouraged, we should be encouraged, to know that the salvation of our neighbors, of our family, and of our children does not depend on our ability to explain the gospel fully and clearly to them. Their salvation does not rest on your own works. As the old saying goes, evangelism is as easy as one beggar telling another where to find bread. Yet, on the other hand, we are faced not with people who need facts, but with hearts who rebel against any fact that you throw at them. It makes evangelism, knowing, realizing all this, actually a little bit harder, because then it challenges us to pray harder, to pray fervently, that the Spirit of God will turn rebellious hearts in the direction of Jesus. Even the most brilliant performance on my part, says one commentator, may still fail to convince the hearers. Just as our best thinking could not save ourselves, it will not save others because sin and salvation are not a matter of correct thinking, but of rebellious hearts transformed by the Word of God. What you and I need then when we realize this what our loved ones who are still wandering towards Babylon need what this world so badly needs is a prophet prophet greater than Ezekiel the prophet of whom Ezekiel was but a mere shadow in anticipation in our ignorance blindness and rebellion We need Jesus, the true and better prophet who who preaches to our ears and to our hearts, who made the wisdom of God incarnate for us and who freely reveals God to those who ask, as we read in James 1.5. What we all need right here today, tonight, saints and sinners alike and simultaneously are the beautiful, wonderful words of life that we find only in the gospel of the Son of Man and the Son of God? Can you hear it? He is calling you. Let us pray. Blessed Lord you who have caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such a way hear, read, cherish, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, and together we say, amen.